if you would. We're going to be in uh, chapter 16, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Uh, Peter's inspired confession is what I've titled the message here this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. May the Holy Spirit indeed be our teacher. Uh, use me as a as a small t teacher, you're the ultimate teacher. So, Lord, we commit our, our study to you. Ask that you would have your way in our hearts. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you note on the outline, the theme of Matthew is uh, Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the King. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience presenting all manner of evidence from the ministry of Christ showing that indeed Jesus is the promised Messianic King, in perfect accord with the Old Testament Scriptures, the nation's religious leadership, speaking of Israel now, the nation's religious leadership essentially rejected the claims of Christ, and the nation was at best generally confused about his ministry. From this point on in Christ's ministry, Israel's folly in refusing to acknowledge the Messiah looms over private discussions, public debates, and prophetic discourse. At this point in Matthew, namely the text we are studying this morning, starting with Matthew 16, verse 13, denotes a great divide. The great divide in Matthew's gospel. Here we see the great confession of Peter and the introduction of a great new truth called the church. It's in this chapter that we have introduced the church. And church, I'm excited about that because we are the church. Well, as we study it through, we see the great new truth of the church is founded on the great confession of Peter. From this point on, the shadow of the cross more and more falls over Christ's ministry. At this point, we are coming down the stretch on Christ's earthly ministry, dealing with perhaps about the last six months or so of his earthly ministry. So the focus more and more becomes the cross and what will follow after that. So let's pick it up. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Following the narrative through, we see Jesus and his disciples had left the region of Magdala in Galilee and made their way across the Sea of Galilee to the area of Bethsaida. And from there, they go about 25 miles up north to Caesarea Philippi. So here's the trajectory as we are following along. Uh, they were over here. In Galilee, Magdala, they made their way up across the Sea of Galilee up to in the area of Bethsaida. And now they're going all the way up here to Caesarea Philippi, into that region. So that's the traje trajectory of uh, what we are following here. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was originally called Peneus and was a thoroughly pagan place. It had a shrine to the false god Pan who supposedly was born in a nearby cave. 
Caesarea Philippi was, as I say, way up north on the, on the very northern border of Israel at the base of the snow-capped Mount Hermon. Because of its location, it was really essentially what we might call the last outpost of Israel. And therefore, this city was historically greatly influenced by pagan Gentiles, right on the border of pagan Gentile country. A lot of Gentile influence here. This city, uh, Caesarea Philippi, was given by Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great. And then Herod the Great built a temple there in honor of Caesar Augustus. You see what's happening here? (laughs) A lot of political favoritism here. Uh, Subsequently, it passed from Herod to his son Philip, the Tetrarch, who renamed it Caesarea Philippi in honor of Tiberius Caesar. But not only did Philip name the city after the Caesar of his time, but also after himself, right? I mean, yeah, I want to honor Caesar, but I'd like to honor myself here a little bit too. So he named it Caesarea Philippi. See, Philippi, Philip. This also served to distinguish Caesarea Philippi up north from the Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. So you have two prominent Caesareas. I guess, whoops, sorry. Okay, uh, we've got this one way up here where they're at right now. And then we got the one down on the the Mediterranean coast. Uh, This was Caesarea Philippi, uh, renamed by Philip, uh, as we said. And here we got this other one down on the coastline. There were, um, as I say, these two different Caesareas. Uh, Let me see if I got this slide here. I'm wondering. No. I must have left that slide out. Sorry. Anyway, I had a. I thought I had a, uh, a slide of the temple of the to the god Pan, which is kind of a, a major uh, historic site. Uh, when we were in Israel, we visited that place. But uh, notice as they come to this region of Caesarea Philippi, Luke, uh, the corresponding passage, the parallel passage in Luke nine, it says that Jesus was alone praying, and then his disciples joined him. And in that context, Christ proceeded to ask these questions. He first asked them, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, this was the all-important issue in Christ's pre-cross earthly ministry. The title Son of Man was clearly a messianic title, going back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In fact, this title, Son of Man, was Christ's favorite title for himself, being found some 80 times in the Gospels. It emphasizes his identity as being a human, yes, son of man, but it also emphasized his role of Messiah. Uh, And in that role, it was uh, one of humiliation and submission, which characterized the nature of his first coming in the incarnation. So that was true, and yet at the same time, it carried with it the idea of divine authority. So the title Son of Man emphasizes the idea of divine authority in combination with Christ's humanity, which is totally unique to the Messiah. Son of Man emphasizes that Christ is of the order of man, sharing in the very nature of humanity. Son of God emphasizes 
that Christ is of the order of God, sharing in the very nature of God as the God-man. And so Christ is the most unique person in the whole entire universe, being fully God and fully man in one person. Let's see here. Um, Do we have those slides? Okay. All right. I'll go on. (laughs) As God, Jesus was always eternally God. As a member of the triune Godhead, he is eternally the Son of God. But now add to that reality that in history he also became a man. Yeah, there's, there's my slide. Uh, As John says, as he begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. He's called the Word because we communicate with words, and God ultimately communicated himself to us through Jesus, the Word. But he goes on to say, and the Word was God. And then he says, and the Word became flesh, humanity. Jesus was always God, but in the incarnation, he also took on humanity. So when Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It inherently calls for the answer to be something more than a mere man. Imagine if they said, well, that's easy. That's an easy question. You're just a man. Like the title Son of Man that you just used indicates. Imagine if they'd answered that way. That would have been the wrong answer. Because it was woefully incomplete. As I say, this title, Son of Man, was a messianic title rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes in the Old Testament, this title, Son of Man, did simply emphasize a person uh, being addressed was merely human, such as when God addressed Ezekiel as the Son of Man. However, when used in messianic context, there's always a context And when used in a messianic context, such as Daniel 7, the messianic person addressed with the title Son of Man is clearly more than a mere man. He is man, but he's more than man. So here in Matthew 16, 13, Jesus is clearly indicating that he is Messiah man, but clearly there is more. And so Jesus asks the question, Who do people really think that I, the Messiah man, really am? John MacArthur says, Jesus' priority ministry in the world was to reveal himself, to teach, and to demonstrate who he was. That's first and foremost. And of course, what he goes on to do at the cross, it ultimately builds to that. But that's based on who he is. Couldn't just be anybody who dies on the cross as an adequate payment for the sin of the world. Had to be the right person. Note it is clear that Jesus is not asking what the religious leaders per se thought, as they had already made it very clear that they thought he was a false teacher doing miracles by the power of Satan, as we saw back in chapter 12. Rather here, Jesus is asking what the Jewish people in general, the crowds in general thought about who he was. And here's their answer, verse 14. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Note that in each one of these answers, they connect Christ's ministry back to the previous prophets. They were highly regarded. 
And say, well, everybody thinks you're a false teacher. No, no, that wasn't what the general population thought about Jesus. They clearly have a high regard for Christ's ministry in league with these previous well-regarded prophets. And so they clearly see a supernatural character to it. They see that there's God is behind it like he was the other prophets. And the thing about each of these prophets that are named is that they were now dead. They were dead. Luke 9.19 specifically says, the parallel passage, others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. They're clearly thinking in that vein. So the people generally seem to be thinking that Jesus is one of these dead prophets who has risen from the dead and is now ministering among them. Clearly, they did not see Christ's ministry as ordinary. They clearly saw he was someone special, and yet they missed the central point of who he really was. They clearly saw the supernatural character of his ministry, but they failed to see him as Messiah Lord. Now, in connecting Jesus with the prophets, they clearly connected his ministry with messianic prophecy in the sense that the prophets all had a prophetic ministry that looked forward to and was tied to the Messiah in that sense. And yet they failed to see him as it, as the Messiah. Now, some thought that he was John the Baptist, come back to life. Remember Herod Antipas, back in Matthew 14, had this view. However, John the Baptist was merely the forerunner, as prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3, also Malachi 3, 1. He went before the Lord, preparing the way before him by calling the people to repentance. But as John 10, 41 says, John did no sign miracle. Thus, the ministry of John the Baptist and that of Jesus were very different. Others thought that he was Elijah come back to life. This is not a bad guess, by the way. Elijah did perform some amazing miracles in his life. God did it, but he did it through Elijah. And the Jews knew full well of the prophecy that Elijah must come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, as seen in the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. They knew of this prophecy. Now, John the Baptist did come in the, quote, the spirit and power of Elijah, but he was not successful in turning the hearts of Israel back to the Lord. He was a type of Elijah, John the Baptist was, but he was not the Elijah. However, Elijah himself will yet come. He will yet come in the tribulation period, as Jesus says in Matthew 17, 11, and he will, quote, restore all things, meaning he will be used of God to bring Israel to repentance, which was the goal of John the Baptist. It didn't happen under John the Baptist, but it will happen under Elijah in the future. Well, it is because of this prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that the Jews to this very day set up a chair at the table at their Passover celebration in hope that one day he will show up and announce that the Messiah is coming. And so commonly what the Jews do, even to this day, is during their Passover celebration, 
uh, they will have a young child in the middle of it all go to the door and see if Elijah is there. Now, just my quirky sense of humor, I've often thought it would be kind of cool to dress up as an old man, hairy old man, you know, looking like Elijah. And when the child comes to the door, say, hello. <laughs> just a little bit of Dwight fun here. But uh, anyway, probably not a good idea. Maybe they'd have me come in. I'd get a free meal. I don't know. But uh, they are still expecting him to come. So it is easy to understand why in Jesus' time, some thought that Christ was really Elijah. Elijah did power miracles. Jesus did power miracles. They were expecting Elijah to come. And here Jesus was on the scene doing most unusual things, causing many to speculate that this person was indeed Elijah. Others thought perhaps Jesus was Jeremiah, come back from the dead. Now it seems that they may have gotten this idea from the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees which claims that Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant and other articles from the temple on Mount Nebo. You can read this if you want. Just look it up online. 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verses 1-8. through It's there. The legend then developed that prior to Messiah coming, Jeremiah would return and restore the Ark back to its rightful place in the temple. You realize at this point they had lost the Ark. We're still looking for the ark. Where is the ark? Nobody knows where the ark is. But they thought, Jeremiah is going to come back. Maccabee said, he hid it. He's coming back. He's going to restore it, the legend said, before the coming of the Messiah. So some thought, Jesus must be Jeremiah. And still others conjectured that Jesus was one of the former prophets, but not sure about which one. They clearly saw in Jesus a prophetic ministry. They saw him as a prophet, but not the messianic prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. William MacDonald says, To the average person, he was one among many, good but not the best, great but not the greatest, a prophet but not the prophet. This view would never do. This is comparable to many today who want to see Jesus as a a good teacher, but fail to see him as Lord God Almighty. C.S. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Be a flat-out liar. That's mine. Lewis says, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Amen. And this is where the people in Christ's day generally were. They saw him as a great prophet a great teacher, but that was it. 
But that is woefully insufficient. You see, even Muslims think Jesus was a great prophet. But that's not saving faith. Warren Wiersbe says, One thing is clear. We can never make a true decision about Jesus Christ by taking a poll of the people. (laughs) Amen to that. Verse 15. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Becomes now very personal. Okay, we got the, the, the poll, the feel for everybody out here generally. But what about you, my disciples? Who do you say that I am? Christ now called on these disciples to answer for themselves, which is where it ultimately goes. This was like the final test. Did they even get it? This is the ultimate issue. For two and a half years, they had been with Christ. They had heard him teach. They had seen his character day in and day out. They had seen his mind-blowing miracles on an up-close and personal basis as a way of life. Now came the ultimate question. What say you? Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? This was the all-important question. Because who he was defined Christ's entire ministry. What would their final answer be? And no, they couldn't call a friend. What would their answer be? Peter answers for the whole group as he is prone to do. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They say Peter is commonly the spokesman for the disciples and answers the question saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, that was a powerful answer. That was the right answer. An absolutely profound answer. Both Christ and son of the living God have the definite article, the Christ, the son of the living God, the definite article, denotes a definite object of reference. The word Christ is the Greek word equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. So whether you're talking Messiah or Christ, it's interchangeable. Messiah, the Hebrew word, Christ, the Greek word. And it means literally anointed one. It's not a proper name, but rather a title. It's a title. In the Old Testament, priests, kings, and prophets were anointed with oil, signifying their special calling and appointment by God. An anointed one was, had a special calling. All of these were anointed ones, but Jesus alone was the anointed one. The role of prophet, priest, and king were all wrapped up into one person in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the end of all appointed ones, with him being the anointed one, the most special one, with the most special of all callings. Uh, just a couple of references in the Old Testament scriptures. In Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the anointed one, until Messiah, the prince. And so you could do the math, which would lead us right up to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. A lot of background in relationship to that prophecy there in Daniel 9.25. 
But then again in Psalm 2, 2, the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, same word, Messiah. Code for the Messiah, the Christ, who was to come, was the coming one. John the Baptist sent word to Jesus asking, are you the coming one? From Genesis 3.15 on, there are many Old Testament references referring to the special coming one who would be both a par excellent deliverer and a par excellent ruler. The coming one who would be deliverer and ruler. Bruce Hurt writes, In fact, 60 major messianic prophecies with 270 ramifications... Jewish rabbis saw up to 456 messianic allusions, were inspired by the Spirit so that there would be absolutely no doubt to Old Testament readers that the man Jesus was truly the long-expected Messiah. The Christ is the long-expected, most special one, with a most special calling as prophesied and promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the chosen one that would fulfill all the covenant promises to Israel. By the way, that's why this title, Christ, is so significant in the gospel formula of 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is what? That who died for our sins according to the scriptures? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Who rose again? Christ rose again according to the scriptures. That word Christ is always connected back to the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies concerning the coming one. And Peter now is saying, you're it. You're the Christ, the coming one we've all been waiting for. Jesus, from the very onset of his ministry, as the anointed one, was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, showing that he was the special chosen one, predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Notice what we have in terms of prophecy, which Jesus applies to himself. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to do the various things that he was doing. And uh, we know this applies to Jesus, because in Luke 4, he applied it to himself when he went back to Nazareth and preached that sermon in the synagogue. Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Oil in the scriptures is often symbolic of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, men were anointed with oil, symbolizing that, you know, God was empowering them with his Spirit for a special calling. But Jesus, as the anointed one, was uniquely anointed with the Spirit Without measure, as it says in John 3, 34, he was completely controlled by the Holy Spirit in every aspect of his life. Well, the Jews expected the Christ, the Messiah, to come, but they had no idea that he would be God come in the flesh. Thus, they highly underrated the coming Messiah, thinking he would be merely a very special man who would bring deliverance. But Peter here declares the Christ, who is also the Son of the living God. 
Now, that was radically new. Yes, it was clearly brought out in the Old Testament prophets, but they missed it. Yes, earlier the disciples, on some level, had seen Jesus as the Christ. And earlier they had recognized him as the Son of God on certain occasions, such as when he walks on the water. But this is really the first time on record that we definitively definitively having them putting it all together in one package. Places like John 6, 69, where Peter seems to make a similar confession, there in the older manuscripts, it reads, Holy One, instead of the Christ. And so it was a little bit fuzzy yet. Thus, this here serves as a major clarifying moment. This was not the statement of spectacular enthusiasm, as when Christ walked on the water, but rather the product of studied reflection and solemn faith brought about by God in Peter's heart. Now, many of the Jews believed Jesus to be a prophetic precursor to the Messiah. But Peter declares him to be the Christ, who is in fact divine, very God a very God. John Phillips eloquently puts it when he says this, by saying you are the Christ, Peter put him on the throne of Israel as the Lord's anointed prophet, priest, and king. By saying you are the son of the living God, Peter put him on the throne of the universe. Yeah, and he puts that combination together. So note the parallel emphasis here. Jesus calls himself the son of man, which he is, and Peter confesses him to be the son of God, which he is. He is both man and God. He is the God-man. Now, when Peter declares him to be the son of the living God, that is rich with Old Testament meaning. Living God is used of the true God in the Old Testament scriptures. In contrast to the false gods of idolatry, which are not living, which are not even real. The true God is the living God. I personally love that title. Living things move and are active. Dead things don't move. They don't move. And if they do, it's time for you to move. They don't move. The living God moves in history in relation to Israel. The living God moves in history in relation to the Messiah. The living God moves in relationship to the church within whom he lives today. We are the temple of the living God. He is the living, moving God. The living God inherently has life within himself. When speaking of the living God, the Bible emphasizes his inherent power related to the power of life. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. But the Lord is a true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. See the study tonight. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The one true God is the living God. The idea of son reflects the idea of oneness. Jesus as the son of the living God shares in the very nature 
of God's living essence. How long has God been living? You can answer that. How long has God been living? Forever. Forever. He is the everlasting God because he is everlasting life. He not only has everlasting life, he is everlasting life. Now, as believers, we now share in his eternal life. God shares his life with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me uh, think about this with you theologically, which would just serve to just cut all the cults off at the knees. That is, those who don't believe that Jesus is eternal God. In order to give eternal life, you have to have eternal life. And we might say it stronger. You have to be eternal life. For Jesus to give eternal life, he must be eternal life. And he says in John 10, 28, I give to them eternal life. I submit to you, only God can give eternal life because only he has eternal life. And when Jesus says, I give eternal life, it's a declaration that he is God Almighty who is a living God. He's the son of the living God. Jesus has always shared in divine life, eternal life, because he is God. As God, he has existed forever. As the Christ, he took on humanity to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. Here in Matthew 16, 16, Peter connected Jesus' divine nature with the fact that he is the promised coming Messiah. No small confession. It, it is absolutely astounding to look at say, you are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prayer, and you are God in the flesh. That's amazing. Peter here verbalized that these two facts are connected in the one person of Jesus Christ. Yes, he was of the line of David as the promised Messiah, but he was also fully God, all in one person. By the way, Romans, you know, we talk about Romans being the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. And its theme is the gospel of God. And it begins with this dual premise. This is how Romans starts off. Everything builds on this. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's his humanity. And declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's his divinity. Now with hindsight, everywhere you look in the scriptures, we find this dual nature of the Lord Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man in one person. We see it in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born. His humanity. And he will be called mighty God. His deity. We see it in the angelic announcement to Joseph in Matthew 1.23, where he said, The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. That's humanity. And they should call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's divinity. This confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, became known as the cardinal creed of the church. And it's connected to church truth as we go on in our study, Lord willing, next week.
Jesus goes on to tell Peter that on this rock truth, he will build his church. As seen in verse 18. Now I want you to note that Peter's confession is the exact same thing that John says we must believe to have life in his gospel belief, namely the gospel of John. This is significant because John wrote the entire book of John so that we might believe and have life. What do we have to believe? Well, he tells us. And what he tells us is the very confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is what we must believe, that we might have life. Note, Matthew 16, 16, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. John says, at the conclusion, giving us his purpose statement, at the end of the Gospel of John, I wrote all of these things. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Exactly what Peter said. The Son of God. Exactly what Peter said. And the believing, you may have life in his name. This is the essence of the faith. Warren Wiersbe says, A right confession of who he is is basic to salvation. His person and his work go together and must never be separated. Boy, I could I hammer that all the time, don't I? It's so true. Appreciate that from Warren Wearsby. Amen. Footnote, it seems from verse 20 that the other disciples evidently concurred with Peter's confession. But the question is this, what must have been going on in the mind of Judas who took it all in? Even though the others were believers, as Jesus later indicated in John 13, yet one, namely Judas, the betrayer, is said by Christ to not be clean. He's not a believer. Verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Peter was blessed of God to be able to make this confession. It was truly a highlight in his earthly life. But Jesus makes it very clear that Peter did not have bragging rights. And say, hey guys, I got it right. How about that? Very good, Peter. No, 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 no. No, no. Jesus makes it very clear that Peter did not arrive at this conclusion on his own. Jesus here addressed Peter as Simon Barjona. Bar-Jonah literally means son of Jonah, emphasizing his human origin and thus his humanness. It's as if uh, it's referring to Peter's natural state and it's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, you know what, in your humanness, you didn't arrive at this. Just just keep the perspective, Peter. You're just just Bar-Jonah. You're just Simon Bar-Jonah. You're just the son of Jonah. You're just a human here. You didn't arrive at this on your own. Bring your ego back down here to where it should be. Jesus as a son of God was of the very nature of God, but Peter as merely the son of a man, namely his father Jonah, was merely a man. And as such, he had no divine insight on his own whatsoever. And to make the point even stronger, Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven... 
Flesh and blood and Jewish thought emphasized the reality of humanity. Peter didn't get this understanding through human capabilities. Rather, God the Father showed it to him. We have a very important truth here, my friends. People on their own never come to see the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a miracle. It wasn't Peter's brilliance of connecting the dots, of putting it all together, and therefore arriving at the right conclusion. And we tend to operate that way. If we just connect all the dots, they'll see it. No, they won't. No, they won't. I don't care how well you connect the dots. I don't care how dark the lines are. We never on our own ever arrive at at the right conclusion. It's not like Peter, through deep, unaided human evaluation of Christ's miracles, of his background credentials, of the fulfillment of prophecy, of his unparalleled teaching, it's not like Peter, through human brilliance, put it all together and came to this right conclusion. No, 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 no. This was a total God thing. We need to realize that apart from God showing someone the truth, they will never get it. We are completely dependent upon God. That's why we pray. We need divine help. We need divine illumination to be able to see. And apart from that, no one ever sees. This is consistent with what Jesus said. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Must be revealed. To the two disciples on uh, the Emmaus Road, we read about them in Luke 24. It came to pass as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Their eyes were opened. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to one, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Suddenly they saw it all fit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man, that's the unsaved person who does not have the Holy Spirit. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Apart from the Holy Spirit, nobody ever gets it. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. One more reference just to make the point abundantly clear. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. You know, that's Genesis chapter 1. Let me ask you, was that a miracle? Miracle? God said, let there be light. Yes! The miracle of light. Let there be light. And there was light. The God who did that miracle, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. No one sees this glory apart from God miraculously showing it to them. Now I want to open up to you a great mystery in the next hour and a half that we have together. Just kidding. 
But I do want to open up to you a great mystery that no one fully understands. I love how theologians argue the finer points. And, and there is value in following all of those arguments. And I followed them for years. And yet, in truth, they dance around this great mystery and they never truly solve it. No matter how much they claim otherwise. And that's kind of almost uh, ironically funny that they do claim otherwise. We, we see it on this side. No, no, we see it. None of you really totally see it. This great mystery of God's sovereignty in combination with human responsibility. Both are true. Now, I certainly am in God-centered in my theology as everything begins and ends with Him. And in the end, all the glory goes to Him. And yet, in the middle of it all is the reality of human response and human responsibility in a way that no one fully comprehends. Let me show you what I mean. The Bible is clear that on our own, there is none who seeks after God. And in our unaided humanity, the things of God are foolishness and don't make any sense to us. And the text in 1 Corinthians 2.14 is very strong, saying, nor can he know them. It's not possible. On our own, we just can't get there. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. God chases after us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, as Jesus said. There is what I call the light of conviction, which brings the element of human responsibility into the equation. The foundation for this understanding is stated early in the Bible, as found in Genesis chapter 4. There God revealed truth to Cain, we might call the light of conviction. And then he put the burden of personal responsibility on Cain, saying this. This is what God says to Cain early in Genesis. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. There's a lot of you in there that God addresses to Cain. Personal responsibility. You know what this verse is all about? It's all about human responsibility in view of the light of God's revelation given to him. God did come to Cain. He did show him the truth. There was a light of conviction. But now it was on him what he would do with it. It wasn't like he was just a puppet with no will in the matter. He had a choice to make. And it was laid before him by God himself. And that sets the pattern for what we find in the rest of the scriptures. The Bible is clear that God desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and thereby be saved. The knowledge of the truth is code for gospel truth in the New Testament. There is a knowledge of sin, the knowledge of Christ as Lord, the knowledge of Christ as Savior, the knowledge of justification by faith alone. God the Spirit makes this knowledge known through the light of conviction as the truth of the gospel is shared. But here is what I want you to see, no pun intended. When God shows people the truth in the light of conviction, 
That then brings human responsibility to the fore, where people are accountable for how they then respond to the truth that he has shown them, just like Cain. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, if we sin willfully, we willfully reject the truth. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, it's not that we don't have it. We now have the knowledge of the truth. But we, if we sin willfully, willful rejection, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no other provision than this truth that's been shared with them. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. People can never arrive at the truth on their own, but God in conviction does show people the truth, and then they are especially responsible for it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is a description of apostasy. The sin of apostasy is that these people knew the truth. Apostates know the truth. They have known the truth. They see it. But then they reject it. They never really entered into the good of it, and they are accountable for this level of rejection. The great example of conversion in the New Testament is that of the Apostle Paul. His conversion experience was a miracle, as is the case for all of us who are true believers. You see, Paul himself said in 1 Timothy 1.16 that he is, and I quote now, a pattern, a pattern, did you catch what I said? A pattern for those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's the pattern. You say, oh no, he's, he's the exception. What happened with Paul is, is totally the exception. No, 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 he's the pattern, my friends. You say, well, no one has ever had an experience like Paul had on the road to Damascus, or they would never reject it. Uh, I beg to differ. I'll tell you why. Paul, in having the conviction of the light that he was given, responded positively to it calling on Jesus as Lord. But I want you to know that another man in the Old Testament had a similar experience. And yet he did not humble himself in saving faith. And that man was named Balaam. You see, God revealed himself amazingly clear, <laughs> incredibly clear to Balaam in a most powerful way. Speaking to him through a donkey. Now, when God speaks to you through a donkey, you really should have your attention. But then, the Lord himself, probably a theophany, being Christ himself, revealing himself in this way in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to him as the angel of the Lord, causing Balaam to fall down flat on his face, it says in Numbers 22, 31. Balaam, amazing. Balaam's a very amazing story. He had all kinds of interactions with God. 
even going so far as to make this kind of confession. Notice what he says in, in Numbers 24, 16. The utterance of him who hears the words of God. He knew it. And has the knowledge of the Most High. He had it. Who sees the vision of the Almighty. He saw it. Who falls down with eyes wide open. He had his eyes open. He saw the truth. But sadly, as the story goes on, Balaam is clearly shown to be a wicked prophet. Peter compares false teachers to Balaam who love the wages of wickedness. Jude associates those who function naturally like brute beasts with Balaam, saying they run greedily in the air of Balaam. Paul is an example of a man responding to the light of conviction with true saving faith, and thus is a pattern for all true believers. You see, when God reveals himself and we see the truth, it's like the miracle of let there be light. That was true for Paul, on a unique sense for sure, but in a spiritual way, we all have a miraculous experience. Paul's a pattern of this. Balaam is an example of a man responding to the light of conviction, but yet with an unyielded rebel heart, even though he had various emotional experiences. Both men were shown the truth by God, but they responded in different ways, one positively, one negatively. I like this quote from B.F. Westcott. He who convicts another places the truth of the case in dispute in a clear light before him, so that it must be seen and acknowledged as truth. He who then rejects the conclusion, which the exposition involves, rejects it with his eyes open at his peril. Truth seen as truth carries with it condemnation to all who refuse to welcome it. Amen. This, my friends, is what Judgment Day will be all about. Those who have had the knowledge of the truth and yet did not respond to it are responsible for what God showed them. They never arrive at it on their own. And we in our human wisdom can't make it known, but the Spirit of the living God makes it known. God showed Peter the truth, and he responded positively to it, resulting in this great confession. It was a total God thing as God revealed it to Peter, and yet Peter personally embraced the truth of it. On the other hand, Judas, in effect, sinned with his eyes wide open in rejecting the truth that was also right before his eyes and is eternally accountable for it. In Matthew 16, 15, we have, amount, we have what amounts to the climax of Christ's teaching ministry. Here, in effect, was the final exam put to the disciples, which consisted of just one question. Who do you say that I am? This is a question I like to ask people evangelistically. Who is Jesus to you? And it comes out of this. How a person responds tells a story on them and where they stand. Only those who hold to Jesus as the Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and as Lord God Almighty who rose again, only those who believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, only those who truly believe in His name have eternal life. So let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? The story is told about a certain pastor who was invited to pray at a large political event in Washington, which I am absolutely positive I will never be invited to. 
It was intended to be a politically correct event. And so when this pastor showed up, they asked that he pray in the, in the spirit of correctness. <laughs> in the spirit of correctness, they, they had asked a universalist, an imam, and a rabbi. And then this evangelical pastor to pray. The pastor said he, he would pray if he could go last. The universalist prayed first to the God of many names and to the God of no name and to the God who is everything and to the God who is nothing. <laughs> the iman prayed in the name of Allah. And then the rabbi prayed. Finally, the Christian pastor got up and said, I pray in the name that is above all other names. I pray in the name of the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. I pray in the name by which we must be saved. I pray in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that put things in perspective. But ultimately, it's a very personal matter. It doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. The ultimate question is, who is Jesus to you personally? That is the ultimate issue. Let's stand and have our closing song.